Hello everyone, welcome to our last episode for the year. The year being 2021, which I would say is more normal compared to 2020, but still kind of weird. So anyway, welcome to this episode. Um, we are your hosts, Nina and Kyle. I'm Kyle. I'm Nina. And I agree, it's sort of like a weird year. I don't think it's because things got better. You know, I, I just think we got used to it. Does that make sense? Like, things were still pretty bad. We had, like, two new variants this year. Things, we had, like, the, the Baguio. Um, yeah, I, I think this is just, like, the new normal that you were talking about last year. Like, this is the future that we didn't want to happen. Like, we treat it as if it's normal. Um, and that's basically what happened. This is the this is the bad timeline. <laughs> yeah, you know that meme, the dog that's sitting in front of... Uh, the fiery room like this is fine like i really do feel like that for this year like we have no choice we're trapped in the room and we just have to go this is fine or else we'll go insane yeah <laughs> so anyway on a lighter note i suppose <laughs> whoops that's a weird way to start this episode but hi guys yeah um, on a lighter note i suppose we wanted to talk about our favorite motions for this year um you were thinking about like some other kind of recap for this year but then we realized that you know this year was pretty much a dumpster fire as well so let's just try to look for the things that brought us joy and for many people debating does not generally bring them joy but when it does it gives them a lot of joy so we are celebrating that in this episode and in order to do that we asked everyone in our team the debate the beans Um, what their favorite motion was for this year, like the ones that brought them the most joy, that made them enjoy the most when when they were thinking about it, those kinds of things. Yeah, so basically, we've compiled the list. We also want to hear yours, right? Because everyone has their own favorite motion. And I guess to start it off, I want to talk about mine, which we've already talked about extensively in the last episode. It's about the main character syndrome. Um, Again, I just really, really like this motion because I feel like, 2021 is the year where philosophy motions and motions about self-reflection kind of became the norm. And I know this was yeah. a dilemma in the debate community before. Like, low-impact motions were generally looked down upon. I mean, they shouldn't have been looked down upon, in my opinion, but there was this um, preference for pro- more pragmatic motions. But then when the pandemic hit, I feel like we sort of went into our renaissance era where more self-reflection took place. Uh, suddenly, people had more time to think about their own lives. Like, you yeah. know what I mean, right? Because during the pandemic before, like, there was a period where suddenly art just boomed. Yeah. Directly related to the pandemic. Yeah, so your motion, again, um, for those who haven't listened to the previous episode we did, it's this house would embrace the narrative that individuals are the main characters of their lives. And I completely agree with you that this kind of motion sort of blew up this year um, as opposed to the previous years. Because um, in previous years, whenever you had a motion about like introspection or relationships or love, people have this tendency to go like, yeah, there are other things that are more important that are happening in the world. Why are we talking about your personal relationships? But now everyone is feeling like this sense of isolation, this sense of like restlessness. And I get the feeling that many people start realizing that, yeah, I am important. Like my own feelings are very mm-hmm. important. My own personal philosophies are important as well. 
Yeah, and it's not just in terms of motions, right? We've seen the boom of different types of tournaments like art open, philosophy open, anime open, gaming open, right? A bunch of different opens that talk about quote-unquote low-impact things because they start to be more valuable to people. So I guess that's like the meta reason why I really like this motion. If you want to know the specific arguments and my thoughts on it, you can listen to the previous episode. So I don't want to waste too much time. But basically, I think that this motion sort of encapsulates a lot of what debaters have felt this year. Like, they are now the main character. They're more willing to talk about themselves, more willing to invest in themselves, things like that. Yeah, uh, which leads me to my favorite motion of the year. Since we're talking about anime open, um, I didn't put any motion in our G-sheet because I didn't really think of it. But now that you mentioned anime open, I realized that that might be, you know, my favorite thing to come out this year. Um, specifically, if I were to pick one, because, you know, I would just say like the entire tournament is my favorite. But if I were to pick one, it would be um, a motion from the final set of Anime Open, which is about the author of Hunter Hunter. Um, so this person, um, Togashi, he has been undergoing a hiatus um, for Hunter Hunter for a very, very long time. Like a lot of people even call Hunter Hunter hiatus, hiatus, because it keeps going on hiatus. And the reason for that is he does this in order to protect his mental and physical health. Because in the previous um, series that he had, which is my favorite series of all time, Yu Yu Hakusho or Ghost Fighter, um, he, he fell into like a really deep depression because he was forced to um, keep working on the series every single day for, for a really long time. And he was incredibly burnt out. There are so many stories about people who are working in the anime and manga industry that are just absolutely burnt out because of the expectations that are placed upon them constantly. Yeah, and especially that, in the Philippines, yeah. right? Yeah, even in the Philippines where a lot of a lot of these anime studios they um they outsource a lot of the in-betweens or a lot of the animation work to Filipino studios like One Piece does it a lot with Toei Philippines. Um yeah, so that kind of culture is just really sad. Um, and it also feels strangely enough like a metaphor for, you know, um, these past two years where there is a pressure to function like it's normal. Um, and a lot of the time we don't want to ask for help. And that's the main debate in anime open finals where should Togashi get an assistant to do the work for him? Um, because Togashi has historically said that No, I want to do this on my own. If I'm going to succeed, I want to succeed on my own terms and not because I got other people who are willing to do my work for me. So I think that for a lot of us, we do have the ability, or we do have circumstances that we can use to our advantage. But many of us do not want to use this because we believe that sort of mindset as well. We are saying that I don't want to you know succeed unless it's just me like there's some sort of toxic right but yeah it it is toxic it is toxic but you get it right um it's so difficult to ask for help and um for many people like they are struggling so hard and they still feel guilty about asking for help 
And those are the sorts of conversations that I feel are so important for everyone because um, everyone goes through it. Everyone has this moment where they are contributing something to the world and they know that they're contributing something to the world, but they can't bring themselves to do it. Um, and it's, all, in my opinion, it's okay to ask for help. Yeah, my opinion as well. That's why we have such a great team, right? We wouldn't have been able to do this episode if we just had to think of like, what, like five favorite motions each? Like I haven't even attended enough tournaments to know enough of the motions. Like some of the motions we have on this list, I've seen for the first time, right? So <laughs> as a semi-retired, you need a team. And I feel like that motion best encapsulates the kind of mindset that we should be having in this pandemic. Yeah, so the next motion that you want to talk about comes from Bea. Um, so hi, Bea. Thanks for sending us this motion. It was about folk saints. So this is a motion that came out in WUDC or Worlds. So it's the World Championships of Debating university debating it's about religion um specifically catholicism because there's this concept called the folk saint which is a dead person who is recognized within a particular area as a saint um, but is not officially acknowledged by the catholic church so like they're basically prayed to already they're worshipped by people in that area but they're not recognized as saints by you know, this big structure called the Catholic Church. Um, so the info slide says that unlike regular saints, folk saints have or might have lived lives that the church considers to be sinful. And for many of them, they might be, you know, patrons of some undesirable or sinful people. For example, in Latin America, um, there's this folk saint called Sarita Colonia, who answers the prayers and is actually the patron saint of sex workers, of prostitutes, of um, members of the LGBT, those kinds of people. Um, and also in Latin America, you have one soldado who answers the prayers of people who commit low-level crimes out of financial desperation. So the motion that Bea um, chose as her favorite was, this house believes that's in the best interest of the Catholic Church to officially recognize folk saints. Question, do you think Jose Rizal would be part of this? Because there are right, Rizalistas that worship Jose Rizal like a saint. Do you think that would be involved here? Um, I don't necessarily know. Um, the first reason why I don't think so is um, R- Rizalistas, they worship Rizal. I'm not sure, how, but my understanding is they worship Rizal in and of himself and not as like, someone in connection to the the broader Catholic Church or in broader Christianity. Um, actually, should we Google that? Should we Google that? Yeah, like, let me Google that while you, you just explain things more and I'll Google. Yeah, so the thing about folk saints is that, um, generally speaking, they are so widely worshipped by Catholics. So they don't have to identify as a member of another religion in order to worship a folk saint. Um, But I wanted to note that um, for this motion specifically, I don't think that they are necessarily um, living sinful lives. So for example, the info slide talks about Sarita Colonia, who is the patron saint of sex workers and LGBT people, which implies that she was an LGBT sex worker, but that's not really the case. 
what actually happened as far as we know about Sarita Colonia is she was just she was just a little girl um she was just a little girl um living in Lima who had to take care of her six siblings um because her mother died her father remarried but um she had to take care of her siblings and in order to do that she took so many jobs like at the same time she was selling vegetables and fruits and whatnot um on the streets and she also had to be a maid and a caregiver and stuff like that all the while she was not even a teen she was a literal child um so she died from malaria um and her father um put her picture on a cross and on the, her tombstone and a lot of people who knew her a, a lot of these people were poor um who who were suffering also in lima um went to her and asking for guidance so that's how she became the people's saint um of lima because you know she wasn't really a sex worker but she was supposed to represent those who were disenfranchised in this vast urban sprawl called lima but yeah. the reason why and I, i just want to emphasize this so first of all she wasn't necessarily living this life that the catholic church would consider to be sinful but i just wanted to note that the reason why she's still not considered as a saint by the catholic church is because of a rumor basically a rumor um where the rumor goes that she was molested before she died and because she was molested um she was no longer pure and that's the reason why she she's not being recognized by the church that sucks <laughs> like it doesn't just kind of suck it really does suck like i know like saint rose of lima do you know the story about that no that, what's up so they that saint is a national saint recognized by the catholic church and the reason is because i think saint rose of lima was so pretty that she almost got molested and you know how she retaliated she i think she put thorns all over her face or something Yeah. Like Saint Benedict in reverse. Like <laughs> like Saint Benedict threw himself into a thorn of bushes because he got horny. But Saint Rosalino was like I will throw myself into bushes because other people get horny. So you also see the sexism, right? So if it's a yeah. if it's a woman, she has to be the one that adjusts. But anyway, that that's that's the story, right? So I guess she's still considered cuz she technically didn't get molested was but was almost molested. She was anyway, still pure, quote unquote. She was pure. still pure, and that that kind of annoys me because, like, who is the church to decide who's pure and unpure? So if I ride a bike and I break my hymen, am I no longer worthy of being a saint? Yeah, unfortunately, you should not have Ridden entered into sexual relations with your bicycle. Yeah, unfortunately, anyway. <laughs> I'm so sorry to tell you, but also I I just want to say that it's not like those people who are actually acknowledged as saints by the Catholic Church are always. moral people yeah, um so true. like you mentioned saint benedict and you know as a benedict yeah in under the rule of saint benedict which a lot of people use as like a basis for guiding people into adulthood or whatnot um if you are faced with someone who is disobedient or rude or stubborn the main punishment is you have to warn them but if they don't listen you have to publicly shame them and if they still don't listen you have to excommunicate them so that that seems kind of simple and maybe that's why they wanted to kick me out <laughs> because i was i was not very obedient um but uh the rule of saint benedict also says that 
if the child or if the monk does not really understand what excommunication is or the gravity of excommunication, then the proper solution is to just resort to corporal punishment. In other words, St. Bendix says that if the person who you're punishing does not have enough discernment to understand the punishment, you should just beat them up. Um, so basically, that's, that's what he's saying. Like, If you're a child and you don't understand why um, these adults are being mad at you, just beat up the kid. And that's like, That's that's an actual saint. And you had other saints that um, acknowledge or encourage um, corporal punishment because of what St. Benedict said. And another example is um, someone from 2015. Um, I mean, by this, I mean he was canonized yeah. or recognized <laughs> as a saint in 2015. Um, although he died in like uh, the 18th century, so the 1700s. So his name is Junipero Serra. Um, he was a Spanish colonist who started Catholic missions in the 18th century in California. And basically what he did was, you know, it was the 1700s and he was in California. So he basically just forced Native Americans, you know, the natives into Christianity. He herded them into overcrowded farms where they were deceased and enslaved um, and They were forced to work on the settlements. And if they disobeyed, they would get beatings, partly because of St. Benedict's endorsement of corporal punishment as well. So, yeah. <laughs> um, so I think that just because, just because we're talking about sainthood does not necessarily mean that they have to be absolutely moral 100% of the time. So even assuming that these people might be um, sinful, right? the fact that they are that their stories are so impactful to people it kind of says something about what people need from the church so in this motion you are taking the perspective of the catholic church what are the interests of the catholic church you want to make sure that your religion is relevant and in order to make yourself relevant you have to make sure that the stories that you're endorsing resonate with the people who believe in your religion as well Yeah, so basically, I think the principal side, we kind of discussed, like, the standards are vague anyway. But on the pragmatic side, as a religion, you need to stay relevant. And to do that, you need to adapt to the times. Of course, there's also the argument on the other side where you have to talk about, you know, staying true to your values and things. But I think, objectively, as a Catholic church, it's kind of hard to defend, given that you have people like St. Teresa and St. Benedict, you know? like abusing individuals in the process of getting what they want. Kind of makes you um, second guess yourself as a Benedictine, doesn't it, Kyle? Like, no, do you have always... dilemmas? <laughs> no, no, I don't have a dilemma about it because I always hear that, yeah, this is not always cool. Like, um, I heard a story from my um, theology teacher about exorcism because the St. Benedictine, the St. Benedict Medal um, that I have on me right now, <laughs> Nina gave me one, but the St. Benedict Medal is used for exorcism as well. And I was told that in order to exorcise a demon out of someone, part of it is you have to tell them all your sins and then beat them up. So <laughs> like a lot of people, like when, uh, apparently, I, I'm not sure, uh, this is hearsay from my end. A lot of people, when they 
learn how to exercise you are like nah I'm, I'm just gonna leave i'm just gonna leave the seminar because i don't want to first of all i don't want to tell a random person my sense but number two i don't want to beat people up yeah that's funny that's funny oh by the way before we move on to the next motion i did the research on rizalistas they actually believe rizal is god himself so i don't think yeah. it's under the catholic church so he's not a folk saint it's like a different thing altogether but you know I'm happy we clarified that for the sake of clarity. All right, next motion now. We kind of spent a lot of time there. I think because we're kind of nerdy. You're nerdy about religion. I just have a lot of knowledge about saints and stuff because of my upbringing. But anyway, the next motion is from Miko Bombeo. Hi, Miko. Hope you're Hello. doing fine. Um, it's from my own debate open, which I actually debated with Miko and Thea. So it was a debate to be in team up. Um, and it was the finals motion, which we won. And it's about the fire strategy. If you don't know what the fire strategy is, it's basically financial independence, retire early. And it's basically when young adults accumulate extreme savings and investments in order to be able to retire by the age of 39 or 40, right? And it's also basically giving value to things like items, goods, lifestyles, based on how much um, you're earning. And basically, it's the grind and hustle culture, right? Like, it's not in the yeah. info side, but it's basically a grind and hustle culture. And we've had an episode about this before. But I guess the difference of a fire strategy is that this motion is about whether millennials should adopt the fire, fire strategy or not. Yeah, if I so, recall, if I recall, I was gov here. Yeah. Yeah. So the the fire strategy, from my understanding, is a bit different from hustle culture because hustle culture does not prevent you from spending, right? Like you can hustle and then spend on, for example, a car. But um, my understanding is the fire strategy is you just want to retire as early as possible, and that means that you know you have to stop drinking coffee. You have to stop playing games and stuff. Like what you were saying earlier, like the value of certain items and lifestyles, you look at it based on how much time you would have to spend in order to get that thing. So the main thing that you want to look at is time. Um, so I've heard stories about like people needing to save 50 to 75% of everything that they make in order to do this. And this is incredibly um, problematic if you are not privileged. Like, can you imagine someone who is living paycheck to paycheck and they're being forced to save 75% of it? Well, the motion here is as a millennial, you would adopt it, right? And um, for me, like you're, you're talking as if you're up here. So I already had a response to this, if I remember in the finals, which was to say that obviously when you're working on a fire strategy, you work in percentages, right? So even if you're really extremely impoverished, you can still choose to save 50% and you'd still have 50% of what you have. And I agree that's a small amount, right? But that sacrifices you make so that in the long term, you can have a better life so that you can actually do the things you want to do by the time you're 40. But obviously, there's another rebuttal here like, oh, you're at your prime. You shouldn't spend it working. But for me, time is a construct. If you want to be... Like the, the young, drinking, hip kid at the age of 40, go ahead. Like no one's really stopping you. What I would say is, um, I, I would rebut your rebuttal by saying that 
that's not really true. Like if, if you're really, really poor, you can't just save half of it. You can't even save like 25% of it if you need 100% of it in order to just survive. So for a lot of people, they need to use 100% of what they earn so that they can live long enough to survive to the next day in order to live long enough to survive to the next day. So they really don't have an opportunity to, um, to save. Um, but I suppose you can say on Gov, like in order to restrict the debate somewhat, to say that, okay, it's not really about those very, very underprivileged people because whatever strategy we're doing, it would not apply to them. So we're talking about people with a little bit of privilege. So it kind of, yeah, it, it's kind of saying that if you have the ability to employ the fire strategy, the question is, should you employ the fire strategy? Yeah, I was about to say that. Like in our debate, I remember restricting it because it's about whether you would adopt it. So that implies you had the option in the first place. So that argument yeah, can correct. work. Yeah, correct. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> so basically, <laughs> we, we, we prepped the same way. I'm so proud of us already. Like, you know, years and years of refining this kind of discussions. Um, we just end up repeating ourselves. But basically, um. Yeah, I remember there was like a principle here about why we should escape the capitalist system as soon as possible, even if that means leaning into the capitalist system for a while. Because, yeah. you know, uh, my defense there was like, yeah, sure, you're participating, but you're participating less actually by, you know, limiting the time you're staying in that system. And then eventually oh, yeah, you can leave. Sure. But I was also thinking like, since you're talking about time earlier, I think that while it's true to some extent that you can still be a party person at the age of 40, that doesn't necessarily mean that all your friends will still be a party person at age 40. You know, so you have to recognize that there will be a trade-off. Yeah. You know, like there are less opportunities to experience certain things because you're at the age of 40. Um, but at the same time, there are more opportunities that you can afford now because you're richer. Because you employed the fire strategy. So this debate is really just about like balancing that. The lost opportunities that you the loss of op- the opportunities that you lost because you waited so long versus the opportunities that you gained because you adopted the fire strategy. For me, my answer along is if they're the type, for example, that would ostracize you because you're not drinking with them, then you just get better friends. Get friends that also use the fire strategy. Be poor together at the start. And then when you're all rich titas and titos, you buy like a rich like vacation oh, no. home in Zambales or something, right? <laughs> yeah, another another thing that you can say is, uh, another. I don't know if this happened in your debate, but like I, I just thought of like, um, you can say that, oh, your experiences, now that you're rich, are better because you have a longer time to enjoy them because you're, you're 40 years old, you have 40 more years or like 60 more years. Let's say you live until 100 you have so like a much longer time to enjoy the fruits of your labor, basically. But at the same time, I, I feel like you can respond to this by saying, no, if you work yourself to the bone for 40 years, you it's highly likely that you're not healthy enough to reach the age of 80. So you might only be able to enjoy that for 20 years. And then maybe government can respond to that by saying that, well, it's not about the length of time it's about the intensity of your good experiences. Like, I could, I could 
live for only 20 years longer but if i'm surrounded by people who make me happy then like that's great so it might not be the length of time that you enjoy it but the amount that you enjoy those experiences that you have with yeah we actually preempted that so i, I searched up our old case because it's in google drive um so when they spoke as first speaker we already had that idea of sort of reconceptualizing self-actualization like i know it's like a mouthful but it's basically Right now, we put so much value in enjoying things at youth, but maybe that's just because we're been approaching it wrong, and it's become the norm that when you're young, that's when you enjoy things. So what's to say you can't enjoy things intensely when you're older? So basically, what you argued, we just summed it up into you know moving the deadline for self-actualization and not forcing it to happen immediately, because or just because you have time and energy to have that. We even argued that you're more likely to reach self-actualization because right now, in the capitalist system, money is the route, you know, to head there. So it made me curious what my extension was, right? Um, because so far we've been talking about a lot of the basic stuff. So I'm kind of curious what I extended on, and apparently, my extension was about oh because the other team. And I remember who we were against here. It was UPDS. Hi UPDS. I think it was Marco Dava, Gabby, and I forgot the other person. Man, I feel bad. I forgot who I went against. Um, I don't focus because on who I'm going against when I'm debating these days. I just kind of debate. It's hard to know when you're in front of a screen, you know. Yeah, that's true. That's yeah. true. Um, basically, they were arguing on their side that, you know, you're gonna you're gonna end up hurting others, right? Because when you accumulate fire strategy, you are depriving others by accumulating the wealth. For yourself, right? What's your uh, thoughts on that? By the way, like, what do you think of that argument? I think that that happens regardless. Like, as long as you participate in a capitalist system, you know, it's a zero sum game, no matter what. So you can say that on opposition, you know, the the logical conclusion of that argument is to just deprive yourself of everything in in all situations. Like, you should always feel bad about. Trying to reach for a better life for yourself. Yeah. So that was my response as well. So we're on the same page. I yeah. said it happens. <laughs> ill, ill, mind reader. We're on the same page. That's basically what I said. But I also added an extension that if it's about helping people and not making them suffer, you actually do that better with the fire strategy, because if you get to retire early, that opportunity opens up to someone else that's probably younger, right? And you basically bump down. The time of waiting before that person gets a promotion because you've already retired, you've already left. But another thing I said is that when you have the money at that young age and you manage to spend it already, you're not concerned about yourself anymore because you're you're done. You're self actualized. You've actually achieved your goal by the age of forty. So what do you do with the rest of the time? If you are concerned about helping others, then you have more of an opportunity to actually give back. To be a philanthropist, to be someone that donates to charities, that does teaching, volunteerism, that actually achieves what they want as hobbies, right? So if it's about helping people, my extension was you do that better with the fire strategy compared to where you wake up eight to five daily, you don't have time to think about other things or other people. Yeah. <laughs> so the next motion that we wanted to talk about is Jill's favorite motion for this year. Um, which came out in MIV this year. Um, it's about Taylor Swift. So I, I just talked to someone the other day 
about the podcast and they were like, oh, I've never heard this podcast, but I am going to start listening to it because of Taylor Swift's episode on it. Um, so this is, this is one of those motions that's about Taylor Swift. So it's about admitting to the public uh, the inspirations for her songs because apparently, even though everyone has like basically a theory about who particular songs are about, she never publicly admitted um, who those inspirations are. So we go like, Jake Gyllenhaal, Jake Gyllenhaal. But this was not really 100% confirmed pala. Yeah. So the reason for this is because I think, right, the motion is about whether Taylor should admit who the inspirations are. If you were on Gov, at least, I was part of the Agicor for this, so I kind of have a unfair idea of what the debate should be. But basically, if you were on government, what you should be arguing here is that it's a way for closure, right? It's a way to actually cement the fact that Taylor is entering a new era by removing the pettiness, removing the vagueness, like actually admitting to the public and lay- laying herself out bare, right? It's a new era of her being honest to her audience. And that helps Taylor Swift in the short term because of the fact that it boosts her popularity, it gives her a sense of relief, but it also helps her in the long term by, you know, sort of like giving a warning to the rest of the guys in the future that if you, you know, if you mess with me, not only do you get a song now, I'll admit that this song is about you. So those are like the the surface level arguments you can run. But there's also arguments about like maintaining her relevance in the career by making sure there are things that need to be talked about by the industry, that the industry is basically madrama, therefore you're fueling the fire. But the op here is about, you know, giving strength to the narrative of the other side. Because when you admit it's about Jake Gyllenhaal, people will start asking Jake Gyllenhaal for his side of the story, right? The reason why Jimmy Fallon and other things do not cry about those those songs to the actual individuals they're allegedly about is because they don't know for sure and don't want to be the ones to confirm whether it's about Jake Gyllenhaal or Harry Styles, so they won't ask. But now that you're admitting it to the public, it's free game for the press, right? And this might actually disempower Taylor Swift because Jake Gyllenhaal might, you know, say something that harms her or Harry Styles might say something that harms her. Or basically, it just makes the story less about Taylor Swift and makes it more about everyone else, which might not be good for her career. Yeah, that makes sense. I I was thinking something completely different from that. (laughs) Like so, like so this is one of those examples where we do not think the same way because my I was thinking of it from like the perspective of how do we best create more engagement for something. So I was thinking of it more as like a world building thing or like an like a death of the author type thing where you say that if Taylor Swift says or confirms um that this song is about whatever you stop any, you know, speculation. You cannot, you know, have more fans talking about their theories about what happened. Um, and that means that, you know, it basically takes away from the experience of being a fan where you talk to other people about those theories, like the communitarian aspect of it. Um, because, you know, you just refer to the conclusive statement from Taylor Swift. So, I'm looking at it from the perspective of like, 
a Harry more Potter liter- fan. Yeah. It's a Harry literary. Potter fan who goes like, I really like this. It's just that I don't need you to fill in every single gap for me because you are basically spoon feeding it to me as opposed to this is a piece of art where we have this interaction between like the author and the audience where we're where I'm interpreting a particular song so it it actually kind of restricts the audience from seeing themselves in it and like a really big thing with a Taylor Swift song is how relatable it is So if it is only about a particular person or only about a particular um situation, you know, it prevents you from looking at it from your own perspective. Like, what if I was there? Because I can't imagine myself landing Jake Gyllenhaal, even though he's problematic, apparently, according to theories, uh, I still can't imagine it anymore. Um, But if it was like someone, like a vague person, like I don't have any image of who that person might be, I can fill in that gap for myself and it becomes immediately more relatable to me. Yeah, and that increases sales and increases the popularity of Taylor Swift. Now I'm curious, do you have a Taylor Swift song you relate to in any way? No. (laughs) I don't think I have one either. Like, or I I just haven't thought about it in a while, so I'm not sure. Like, I'm not a big Swifty. Like, I just know, I just know a lot about Taylor Swift, mostly against my will. Like, I just, shows up in my timeline everything i know about taylor swift is against my will not that i'm complaining it's just against my will also things i know about other actors like i know so much about jonah hill for some reason right <laughs> jonah hill? i don't know he just shows up in my timeline a lot like about his weed smoking and stuff also about how andrew garfield kisses a lot of male actors have you seen that meme No, no. Like, Andrew Garfield will kiss any male or something. Like, that's something I've learned against my will also. That's so, cute. <laughs> yeah, that, that's cute. But, you know. <laughs> anyway. I mean, if they consent to it, by the way. The caveat, okay? Whenever we talk about this, we always assume that there's consent when we say yes. that it's cute, you know? Yes, yes, of course. <laughs> you know. Anyway, so that's the Taylor Swift motion. If you want to learn more about it... um. Actually, we don't have an episode about Taylor Swift, but if you like Taylor Swift, we do have an episode about her masters, which I think is also very interesting. So give that a listen. The next one's a wild card. And for and this I love one, this. Yeah, I love and for this. this one, we we thank Charlie Vitog. Um, so hi Charlie. Um, this one is about cars. And not just the vehicles. This is about the movie cars. And Basically, there's an info slide here. And I think I want to give this to Kyle because Kyle's good at dramatic reading. Let's go. So in in the first Cars movie, <laughs> I can't do this. So anyway, in the first Cars movie, um, if you remember, there were three, there were basically three guys who were competing to win, um, to win the race. The Piston right? Cup. How dare you forget? Yeah, the, It's the Piston Cup. Yeah, the Piston Cup. So the beginning of the movie... What happened was um, there was a three-way tie. There's a three-way tie between this really old dude named the king, and he's the king of the circuit, whatever. Um, there's this other person named Chick, who's this green guy with, with a mustache, with a very sketchy-looking mustache, and there's Lightning McQueen, who is played by, oh, wow, Owen Wilson. So in, in the Piston Cup, what ended up happening was um, Chick cheated. Um, he sideswiped the king 
um, who was sent into a dangerous crash in the final lap of the race. Um, and Lightning McQueen had the choice between winning the race or going back and helping the king cross the finish line. So there are lots of things that were at stake here. The first one being that whoever wins the race becomes the next king. Um, I'm not sure if this was in, on the info slide, but basically in the Piston Cup, what was at stake here was a sponsorship by Dynaco, which is the big oil company. And, you know, maybe you can do this on up. Like, you know, I don't want to represent an oil company, even in the context of this fictional movie. But anyway, um, Lightning McQueen, instead of um, finishing the race and winning, he remembered his mentor, um, Doc Hudson, who was also taken out of his final championship because of an incident uh, or an accident. So he went back and helped the king cross the finish line instead. So the motion was about whether um, he should have done that. So the motion says, as Lightning McQueen, you should have finished the race instead of going back to help the king cross the finish line. Oh, I see. Like my thoughts here are, it's kind of, for me, I kind of had a question of why couldn't he do both? You know, why do we have to assume it's a trade-off, right? Why can't he have finished the race, went back and made King go third? Or is it because, I don't know, he wanted King to be second place? I don't know. I, I think he just wanted the King to finish. Um, I'm not sure if, I'm not sure if there were rules in the Piston Cup that right, says yeah. that if you pass the finish line, you cannot unpass it. You can't go back anymore to help out a friend. I'm no, not but sure. why, why, why can't he just go in a circle? Like he is not technically going back. You know, he's just. Oh damn! Yeah, yeah. the circuit is a circle. <laughs> it's a circle, Kyle. It's a circle. Well, not a circle. Uh, what do you call it? An oblong? No, depends on the course. Sometimes there's curves, you know. So it's not an oblong. It's like a. What yeah, do you it, call, it loops. What do you call, it loops. Beside yeah, loops. Beside loops. <laughs> okay, we spent yeah. too much time there. This is that's your chaotic. Op. This is chaotic prep time for us, though. That's that's your up case. He's go like, no, finish the race and then loop loop around and then push him to the, no, to the finish line. It, it, it's the the word instead because makes it a trade off. Like you can't. Yeah, yeah, more. yeah. So we can't skirt our burden here, Kyle. As much as we want to, and as much as technically you can, because in the real world, there's no rules against pushing someone else. There, there was a. I remember there was a take that went like, you need to be able to win because if Chick wins, he's not going to be held accountable for his actions because he won. I don't think that's true, though. Like, you can win and still be held accountable, right? Yeah, same. same. I, I'm not sure, like, if that's true, that just because you win, you cannot be held accountable anymore. Like Also, also this motion's kind of hard because if you've seen the movie, you know that even when Chick won... Basically, even the the hot twins booed him, right? And no one was already like on his side. Yeah, the hot chicks are what I remembered, and it's weird I, that I called them hot chick cars. Okay? Yeah, I was and, gonna say, I was gonna say, story. I know what you're talking about when you say the twins, but I I I don't get what you're saying when you call them hot. No, I think they're they're meant to be portrayed as hot twins i don't know okay just let me be um it reminds you of that to the tweet like oh my god who was who was that fish in finding nemo have you seen that meme oh see i know um see gil gil someone gil, played by them. willem dafoe someone referred to them as the hot fish <laughs> yeah 
the green goblin was also the hot fish from Finding Nemo. It's like the the hot fish. <laughs> anyway, sorry, got distracted there by the twin cars. But basically, right, if you've seen the movie, you know that by not winning the race, it actually winning the race might actually harm you even more. Right, because if Lightning McQueen won, he might be seen as selfish because he didn't help the king cross the finish line. The same way Chick was seen as a bad guy. Yeah, so it, it seems like we're arguing for up here. Like, what would we have said on Gov other than, you know, the cheating thing? I would, I would actually say that, you know, victory in the next Piston Cup is not a guarantee. So this might have been his only chance to win. Like, in Cars 3, it's well established that technology eventually catches up to even the fastest of cars. So he doesn't know how fast that technological change would happen. So this might have been his only chance to win. Um, yeah. And then yeah. the next one, he might have lost already. Yeah, or, I, to, or you could talk about, sorry, um, or you could talk about how the king would have been better helped, actually, if Lightning McQueen won. Because he's getting a sponsorship, right? from Dinoco compared to Rusty's. Uh, I still remember you saying, I'm so proud of myself. But right, his his main sponsor is Rusty's. If he got the Dinoco sponsorship, it could actually help um the king. As well as, you know, the the pit crew of of uh Lightning. Radiator Springs. Radiator Springs. Yeah. Radiator Springs. Springs. yeah I almost remembered every detail about that movie except for that. Damn. Yeah, I was I was also thinking on Oppala that um, just to substantiate the fact that even if Chick wins, he might still be prosecuted for cheating. Um, there is clearly, it's not outrightly stated in the movie, but there is clearly a tribunal that makes decisions as to controversies that occurred during the Piston Cup. And we saw this in the beginning because Lightning McQueen became part of the three-way tie on a technicality. Right. Yeah. If you remember in the first race, uh, the car broke down. He broke down, uh, and the only reason why he crossed the finish line was through his tongue. Yeah, and he like, stuck his tongue out. That's a technicality, right? Because like, what if you spit? Like you, you spit or whatever, or you you throw you throw like your your wheel or something. Your wheel across the finish line. Does that mean that you cross the finish line? Right, so there, there must have been a body, an adjudicating body that said, because this tongue was still attached to Lightning McQueen, and that tongue crossed the finish line, we can therefore conclude that he crossed the finish line and is part of the three-way tie. So there is a governing body that makes these decisions about who deserves to win and who doesn't. So you can still hold Chick accountable. Yeah, the and more. it's not yeah, and it's not even just in terms of the race itself or the piston cups like jurisdiction. It's even legally speaking in the whole world. In their in their world, right? Because technically you almost cause the death of someone, right? So I'm guessing there are legal repercussions even outside of the race, right? That makes sense. Yeah, that's because true. you're not and you we saw in like the first part of the movie that there is a court. Sally the Porsche is a lawyer. And Lightning McQueen had to be represented by someone, right? So there is a court system that exists as well. So if it was not through the tribunal of the Piston Cup, then Chick could have been, you know, tried for attempted murder or something, or could have been sued at least for damages even outside of the Piston Court. 
Yeah. The lore. <laughs> the lore. Man, yeah. I, I wish you debated this now. <laughs> go rewatch the Cars movie. It's it's the best Pixar movie. I'm kidding. It's like, it's there my should be, I think I think there should be a, uh, a Pixar tournament. Like, just about the Pixar movies. Like, that would be cool. Like, oh, something oh about gosh. Wally. Something about Wally. Yeah. Like environment. And then Cars is about, I don't know. I guess... I guess this motion, right? Or something like that. There is also a way to substantiate. Because I remember um, y- there was an argument that on Gov where it was like, yeah, you have a moral victory, but your moral victory does not pay the bills, right? Um, and you basically owe the entire town of Radiator Springs for their services. <laughs> like, you didn't see a contract saying that this was a donation. So, be. Like you can probably assume that you have an interest in paying them back for their services somehow. So a moral victory does not do it for Radiator Springs. But I would also say that on opposition, by going back and helping the king cross the finish line, it was a moral victory that led to more concrete opportunities for Lightning McQueen in the future. And what opportunities are these? I'm talking about cars too. Because in Cars 2, he was recruited by the government in order to be a globe-trotting spy. And yeah, but we don't know happened... that was going to be assured, though. Like, you can't argue in retrospection. At least, like, you can't argue in, with certainty that those things would have happened. Like, I think, for me, in the lore, Cars 2 didn't exist, right? Like, no, I don't but like Cars what, I'm say- what I'm saying is that Cars 2 could only have happened because he went back and saved the king. So even if we're talking about hindsight, right? Um, like if this is like a regrets motion, we're looking at Lightning McQueen's acts in hindsight. I would still say that his moral victory opened up so many doors for him because his moral character was seen as you know very good. But I yeah. feel like we talked too much about cars now. No, I think this is such a fun motion. That's why I don't mind spending a lot of time on this. Or anyway, we're gonna move on now to. Thea's motion. Hi, Thea. Mandatory hi for all the debate abuse. Hello. Uh, so this one, I don't know which tournament it's from. It doesn't have an info slide. It's about religious organizations and whether they should actively encourage their followers to consume hallucinogenics and psychedelics for religious or spiritual or mystical events. Um, I think this is a mix of med and religion. Both topics I'm not very good at. Um, so I'm going to let you start with this, Kyle. So um, the thing about religion is, you know, the thing about drinking wine in, um, in, in church, yeah. you know, during masses, you drink wine at the last supper and stuff. That actually comes from a very, very long um, history of different religions imbibing certain substances that would make them feel intoxicated or inebriated or high because that is the way for them to feel closer with their spiritual selves, or, you know, just be more spiritual in general. So there's a very long history talaga. Um, and even today, you have things like ayahuasca and stuff that does get you high. Um, and it has been practiced for hundreds, if not thousands of years by different religious groups, um, by different religions. Um, but right now, because of different laws, you're prevented from, from imbibing those things, except if you're doing it strictly on the basis of your religion, because, and this is not legal advice, but um, 
even if there are um, general laws in place that prohibit, for example, ayahuasca, if you're using it because of a sincerely held religious belief, there might be an exception carved out for you, especially if there is no compelling interest that the state wants to prevent. That is, you know, great enough to warrant the limitation of your right to freedom of religion. Ayahuasca. Sorry, I'm not familiar with my substances. Ayahuasca is... Is it um, like weed or... It's it's a plant that you turn into tea. It's a plant that you turn into tea and it's incredibly bitter um, and it gives you like a a really intense trip, apparently. So that's that's the thing about it. Um... But basically, that's for for Gov. You should you should basically just say that religious organizations, um, as a part of their substantive religious beliefs, they believe that if you experience certain things, you get closer to spirituality or mysticism, um, because uh, the the motion talks about mystical events, and in the philosophy of religion, mystical mysticism has a specific meaning, um, which is that that cannot be understood or um, written about. It basically transcends our ability to talk about them. Um, So mysticism can only be felt. So on Gov, you should say that religious organizations have the interest of encouraging people um, to experience those mystical events for themselves in order to reaffirm their beliefs in in the religion. Yeah, so I would argue this in two ways, right? The principle here is that this is not new to religion. In fact, it's actually going back to its roots. And then basically the second thing, which is what you said just now, um, actually allowing people to amplify their religious affinities and their ties to the religion. How about an opto? Like, I think besides talking about how you know, it would probably harm the image of the church to backtrack all yeah, of a sudden. Definitely. Um, what would the principal discussion be here? Because honestly, I'm very progressive. So it's hard for me to imagine why principally we wouldn't want people to experience drugs that are... You know, Obviously, there's going to be limitations here. If you were in government, you'd state that we're not talking about overdose. We're talking about safe consumption, monitored consumption. Like, I'd put a lot of prongs to be able to prevent that. So... Without the obvious arguments about, you know, overdosing, killing yourself, harming yourself, what's the principal defense for why we should not? I think the image of the church is like, you shouldn't break the law. And we sort of assume that a lot of hallucinogens and psychedelics are illegal. Um, And they have been illegal for a very long time. Um, Even today, um, when it's sort of well known already that certain hallucinogens or certain psychedelics like... um, psilocybin which you might remember um is the thing that people use for microdosing it actually helps out with certain mental health conditions like depression even today there's a lot of pushback against it like there is a wide body of scientific knowledge that says in certain situations um minor doses of psychedelics could be good for you mentally um and and health-wise but there's still a backlash to it because you are seen as like being more prone to do dangerous behavior. Even if it's not like you doing dangerous behavior against yourself, there's still a propensity that you might do dangerous behavior against others. I'm not saying that this is the truth, but this is the way that it will be seen. 
Um, so you want to balance, you know, the benefits to your um, believers and at the same time, the reputation of your religion. Yeah, that made me think of another argument for government, right? So if you were on government and that's the case, like there is a big pushback, I would argue that it's actually an opportunity for the Catholic Church to shape discussions around drugs and the use of psychedelics and hallucinogenics. Sorry, I don't have to pronounce that. Hallucinogenics? Hallucino. Hallucinogenic. Uh, no, hallucinogens. What? Hallucinogenics. Yeah, hallucinogenics. Anyway. Hallucinogens. Yeah, hallucinogens. But basically, that thing, right? So I would argue if I was the church, I'd have more control of government policy regarding this if I managed to convince people first, right? Because what is political rules but the mandate of the people? And if enough clamor exists, then that can actually change. And that gives more power to the church because we're blurring the lines between separation of church and state, which is not good. But the motion is about as religious organizations, right? So you have an incentive as a religious organization to blur the lines that separate you from control of the state. There, I think that's my extension, if I want to go. Yeah, yeah. But on opposition, I would also say that um, you can actively encourage followers to consume hallucinogens, but you cannot really impose your prongs on government. So earlier, you were saying that we're going to limit it, whatever, whatever. But in practice... I don't think that the church can go into your room and say, hey, stop, stop. That, that's too much. That's too many slices. I don't think that the church can do that. Uh, for many believers, the only thing that they will latch onto is that consuming these things is encouraged. And because of this, it's actually more likely that they're going to overdose or do these dangerous behaviors. Because encouraging followers to consume hallucinogenics is one thing. It's simple. It's easy to understand. But when you put like a five-prong policy as to how you, you consume it, you, you introduce all of these nuances, that's harder to remember. That's harder to understand. Yeah, yet somehow remembering everything in the Bible is easy for some people, you know? But, you know, that, that's it's not, the point. It's not easy because like people forget how to love their neighbors all the time. That's fair. That's fair. You're right. All right, so that's that motion. The last one is a kicker. Jay Postrado. Why did you give this motion? Why is this your favorite motion? I do not know. But I will read the motion first before we delve into the info slide because I kind of want to explain it in my own words because I don't like the info slide that much. Not because I think it's a bad info slide. I just don't like finance or econ. Me and neither, this, dude. So don't, and this is, this, is, to me, man. this is IR, so I think I have a little bit more of a grasp here compared to Kyle. But it's also econ, so hopefully like our two brain cells combined will lead to a, a, a decent discussion. It's not going to be as good as Lightning McQueen motion discussion, but we'll do our best. And it's basically, this house believes that it is in the interest of China to continue pushing for the internationalization of the yuan. And the motion info slide here is that presently, China is utilizing a variety of measures to push for the yuan to become a global reserve currency. A reserve currency is a foreign currency that is held in significant quantities by central banks or other monetary authorities as part of their foreign exchange reserves. The reserve currency can be used in international transactions, international investments, and all aspects of the global economy. These measures of, by China include conducting bilateral trade and investment in yuan rather than USD, creating alternative banking systems, 
making it easy to conduct international transactions outside of the USD and gradually alleviating capital controls such as regulations that restrict or prohibit the movement of capital across national borders. Huh. A mouthful. That's a lot. That's a lot. That's a lot. That's a lot, right? So let's start simply, right? So this motion from my IR approach, and I want to ask Kyle after this what his econ approach would be. From my IR approach, there's just two debates here, right? It's about if you were on government, it's about strengthening China and weakening the U.S., right? So there's just two main actors. Of course, there are like lots of subsidiary actors like Africa, how it affects ASEAN, how it affects the European region. But if you want to start simple, it's about increasing China's control. And because it's about increasing China's control, there has to be a trade-off, which means that you are decreasing U.S.'s control. So if you're pushing for internationalization, there are two arguments you have to run as prime minister. The first is why it's beneficial for China and why it decreases the power of the U.S. And then link it back to why that's good for China, right? Because this motion is about the interests of China. So everything you have to argue has to link back to that. And I would argue that the yuan would increase China's power because it actually reduces the cost of what it would take to buy raw materials, right? Am I right about this, Kyle? Like When you're a reserve or global currency, things objectively become cheaper for you because everything is pegged in that so everything is sort of pegged in your currency, right? So it becomes easier for you to conduct transactions because there's less um, transaction costs, there's less exchange rates that you have to go through, things like that. At least, at least this is what I've read somewhere before, but yeah, I'm not sure true. if my memory serves me right. Yeah. yeah. So that's one way you can increase power of China. Another way you can increase the power of China is by lessening the hold that the U.S. has in other countries. Because let's admit it, right? The U.S. Um, dollar is not becoming strengthened. It's actually weakening in the past few years because of the pandemic, because of their bad economic policies, because of Donald Trump's reign, and Biden is still trying to recover. So right now is the best time for uh, China to actually strike because they have a significant advantage. They recovered from the pandemic uh, pretty well. Um, They have the Belt and Road Initiative ongoing. They have like a cultural control on a lot of different countries. They have land expansion, as we can see in the West Philippine Sea. So a lot of things are working in China's favor, and they should capitalize on that to actually turn the yuan into a global reserve currency. Um, so there's a difference here, right, between like the currency that you the other countries peg you on and being a reserve currency. And this is where like it's more technical. So I'm going to pass it on now to Kyle. <laughs> no, this is actually the field of economics that I'm the worst at. Like, oh, really? This, I, I'm so not good at this because because um, <laughs> there are more complicated fields of economics. One of these is international trade and another one of these is finance. So this is a combination of the two fields that I am the weakest in. So like if this was about like health economics or labor economics or like... Um, competition economics i'd be very good at that but this is the type of thing i'm just like oh man um but basically if you have a reserve currency um so like your central bank your banco central of filipinas or your central bank um if you have a large um reserve currency 
that is basically you holding um, a certain amount of dollars and stuff in order to minimize what is called the exchange rate risk. So an exchange rate risk is basically like if you need to purchase something in dollars, right, and you only have pesos, you will have to um, exchange your pesos into dollars first before you can buy this thing. And depending on the different exchange rates, it might be worse for you because um, you might have to shell out more pesos, right? Compared to if you just had to shell out dollars. So that's the reason why basically you, you want to have a, a reserve currency. But if you want to be the global reserve currency, basically all these different countries will be looking towards your own monetary policy and changing your own monetary policies in order to fit that. So the reason for that is if you predict that there's going to be inflation in the future for this global um, reserve currency, you might want to have more of it right now because that will just increase in value in the future. So if you get a lot of it right now, you'll, you know, so that sort of mechanizes the control arguments that you're talking about. Like, your own monetary policy as China will drastically shift or change or influence the different monetary policies of all these other countries as well. Yeah, so let's talk about OP here because I feel like so far, I'm personally a little bit biased towards Gov knowing how China has been working and things like that. But I guess, right, if you wanted to opt this, you have to talk a bit more nuanced about current events. Like, obviously... Everything I argued about China doing well is still debatable. I personally lean towards, you know, the stability side of China's economy and China's politics. But in reality, you could argue that it's still unstable. So that's an argument against wanting to internationalize the yuan. Like, it's not ready. China might fail if they internationalize the yuan. It might worsen their image in the long run. So those are factors that you can consider if you want to be an op. Or actually, you don't get to choose. But if you end up in op in this motion, those are some of the things you can argue. You can also argue that by internationalizing the yuan, you know, you antagonize the U.S. even further and increase the tension that you might you have with them, which you might not be ready to win. So as China, in a political and international sense, you might not be ready for the political battle that will take place if you try to overthrow the USD. But you can also argue that even without movement, you're still likely to succeed as China because all you have to do is watch the U.S. fail, right? I would argue that the best strategy for OP here is to argue that China shouldn't pursue internationalization. It's to just watch the U.S. fail and then wait for other countries to beg the yuan to take its place. That way, there's more legitimacy, right? Yeah, that's true because... Um, if you, um, if some of our audience might know that the reason why the U.S. dollar is the the official global reserve currency, it's because of a multilateral treaty called the Bretton Woods Agreement. I mean, is it the treaty or is it an agreement? I don't know. Besides the Bretton Woods, um, so a lot of different countries agreed that this would be the global reserve currency. And a lot of people, a lot of states felt left out by that. And that includes China. That includes all the different countries in the BRICS um, group of countries. So Brazil, um, Russia, India, China, and what's the S? 
I don't know actually. Basal, th- those groups of people, uh, those groups of states, right? So, um, because of that, there was always, there has always been some pushback against the adoption of the U.S. dollar as a global reserve currency. But people just acquiesced to it because it was the only alternative of- available. So if they, if that fails, if that fails, the yuan will probably be like the yeah. uh, the the next best thing just by default. Because um, it has, or I, I think that you can still continue doing your um, trade and investment um, treaties, bilateral trade and investment treaties as China, but you don't really need to go so far as to like, we're going to make a new bank that is going to be the opposite of the World Bank. It's going to be the difference with like the IMF and stuff because that is just Western imperialism. By the way, if, if you're on Gov, you have to talk about the fact Western that yeah. this is Western imperialism, basically, like this global reserve currency, as it exists today, is a result of the West imposing, or the United States in particular, imposing um, the US dollar on everyone else, essentially. So maybe an opposition, you kind of want to say that you don't want to be like that. You don't want to seem like you're the new imposer of, of a new global reserve currency. Yeah, I, I now know what the S in BRICS is. It's South Africa. Just so everyone knows and we're on the same page. It's South Africa. And I feel bad for forgetting. So I want to apologize. But yes, it's South Africa. There. <laughs> yeah, so I guess that's it. I, I don't like JY. No, let's not, let's, let's not end on that, right? So I think we've discussed a variety of different motions. And as we can see, it was a very eventful year for different themes right so we have really good econ motions like the one jay gave us you have good motions that talk about the self good meme motions that are very substantiated actually and you'd be surprised how many debates can exist around movies and pop culture right so i guess what i want to end this on kyle is before we start with the new year what motions would you like to see more of for 2022 like what do you want people to explore a little bit more? What would you like to see? What would you like to maybe debate one day or add score for? Right? So what are your expectations for motions in the next year? For the next year, I know what I don't want to see more of, which, which is? is COVID motions. And I, I didn't say this last year um, because we didn't have this sort of segment last year, but I also wanted there to be less COVID motions um, for this year because in my mind I want it to happen not because people are tired of talking about it but because the situ- the COVID situation is getting better so that's my main wish but I, I realize that it's not really going to be feasible at the rate that we're going at um, so I want I, I predict that there will be more motions Sigur about art um, that is something that we have been looking towards so much nowadays because it still reminds us that we're still human as opposed to before, before the end times, you know? Um, A lot of people really did not like art motions at all because, you know, there are more important motions now. Um, But now we've seen so many more art motions lately. Um, I like that there is a trend in philosophy motions because there are now new ethical um, conundrums that, that we found ourselves into. And 
I don't know why. I actually don't know why, but there's there are more religion motions now than ever before. I don't want to think that's because like I influenced it somehow. Um, but if I did, wow, <laughs> trendsetter. But I am so happy that at least for two debated beans, their favorite motions for this year are religion motions. I wouldn't mind if that continued on into the next year. Yeah, so I think, you know, I just kind of want to add on that. I think the reason why religion motions are becoming popular is because, like, there was a theology open, right? So, like, there was an entire tournament yeah, just about religion. I think it's also the same reason why philosophy motions are becoming popular. Like, no offense. I don't know if this is offensive. Probably not. Like, philosophy and religion overlap quite a lot, which is why you're good at both, right? So, when people start introspecting more about themselves, They also, they also introspect about their relationship with the rest of the world. And that's basically what religion is, right? So I think that that's what's happening. We're entering a sort of renaissance for debate. Um, for me, man, I like the trend that's happening now. Like more philo. I like that there's more like fun motions that people are more willing to ex- uh, explore. I want more accessible motions. Do you know what I mean? Like motions that even non-debaters can talk about. So the Lightning McQueen motion. A lot of people hate it. Like people were memeing about it, kachow all they want and whatever. But I think it's a good gateway for people who don't know a single thing about debate that enjoy right. movies, yeah. right? So yeah. this is a way to get them into the discussion. Or for example, the Taylor Swift motion. So notice how a lot of these um, motions that are debate being picked, they're pop culture not because they're easy right i don't like calling them easy motions there's no such thing as an easy motion but they are motions that force you actually to explore things that you wouldn't typically associate with debate if anything that's harder right like how do you relate taylor swift to like everything else that's going on in the world how would you impact that how would you prove that that's important to someone and that's the challenge of debate so i want to see more motions of people having fun with it Yeah, people should have more fun debating. Yeah, like the horse motion, right? You, you choose to reincarnate yourself as a horse. Like that that was so fun. Like that was amazing because it got even non-debaters sharing that post and questioning what is going on with the debate community. Why are they talking like this? And that's how they join, right? Yeah. So I, I want to see more of that. Like that's my take, um, which is surprising probably for a lot of people because they know I like IR. But I don't want to see any more IR motions. I'm good at it because <laughs> I was forced to like it. But I don't think, for example, if you want to get ordinary people into debate, stop making motions so hard and stop reinforcing the stereotype that debaters are only debaters if they know every capital of every country. Because even yeah. I don't know that. So you know, just because just because a motion is accessible does not mean that it's no longer sophisticated. It does not mean that it's no longer deep enough to be considered to be, you know, a, a nationalist quality motion or a whatever quality motion, right? So just a lot of people say that, oh, it's too accessible. It's too simple, right? But there is a beauty and dignity and simplicity. Um, and maybe within the confines of that simplicity, you can find a way to argue things with so much sophistication that it would be, you know, it would resonate with even more people. I feel like there is... Um, there is a hesitation to set these kinds of motions because there is the reputation for the debate community that it always has you about these really big issues, not these small issues. But if you really have the position that debate is for everyone, 
that should come with a corollary position that we can debate about anything that we want, anything that affects us. And that can be international relations. So if there are very important issues in international relations, there should be motions about international relations. But if there are motions that really impact an individual sense of self-worth, um, their moral sensibilities or whatnot, like what your life would be if you were not a human, then those things should be debated as well. If you want to debate more about Harry Potter, go ahead. So that's that's what I feel. I, so I completely agree with you that we should start democratizing debate, not just in the sense that anyone can be a debater, but also that a debater should be able to talk about and accept everything, all these different types of topics as well. Yeah, that's my thoughts as well. Amazing. Um, so that's our hopes for 2022. Um, we hope you like the motions we discussed. There's quite a variety of them. I'm sure you have more. Feel free to, you know, talk about them with your friends or talk about them with your fellow debaters. I think having a recap of motions for the year, it's not just good training, but it's also preparing you for the next year. Like what you want to expect, what you think will come out, how you think things should be approached, etc. So that's it for today's episode. And for our last episode of 2021, it was quite a ride. We posted a lot of episodes, not as many as we would have wanted. But, you know, there's another year. We're still alive and kicking. We're still going to post episodes and find more things to talk about. So we're excited to have you along for the ride. And we hope you enjoy 2022 with us and that your debate careers blossom or retire, depending on what you want. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah so that's it for this episode thank you so much for being part of our 2021 we'll see you next year bye bye